Welcome to the 15th episode of the Tech Gypsies podcast. I'm Audrey Waters. And I'm Ken Lane, speaking loudly. <laughs> Good. That as, as requested by our four followers, four listeners. Yes. Um, so, boy, uh, it feels like every time we lead off a, a podcast, we have to sort of start with saying what a... What a crazy, shitty, strange, and awful week it's been. But this one felt um, sort of felt particularly strange and awful as it was sort of televised across the U.S. at least um, with the Republican National Convention. I didn't watch. And? Yeah, it's pretty troubling. Um I don't know. It's it's it, it it's cringeworthy. It makes me. It's hard to watch, and but I feel like I kind of got to be, be in that cringe mode right now. Because if I'm not cringing, I'm not paying attention. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think that there are, you know. I mean, I think that there are several places in which we could sort of talk about the ways in which this intersects with. Uh, with our technology space, least of which being the fact that um, on stage on the final night of the RNC was Peter Thiel. Yeah, um, I don't know why. I mean, I know I'm happy to hear that some of Silicon Valley is is less than thrilled to have him, I guess, be some sort of spokesperson for the community. Um, but I just don't understand why the fuck he was there and, and why he kept getting references being a, a representative of the tech community by the mainstream press. Yeah, I mean, it's actually interesting. I mean, I think that this is, I mean, this is why I think some of these things are worth our dissecting, right? So Peter Thiel has long been associated with and a very vocal proponent of libertarianism. So on one hand, one might say it's very odd to have him on stage um, supporting the Republican candidate, let alone the Republican candidate being Donald Trump, who, by all intents and purposes, does not appear to have much in common with libertarianism. Yeah. I, I mean, they kind of seem to cherry-pick, I guess, there's certain very certain data points that that overlap i guess between whatever the republican the libertarian and whatever the fuck donald trump is his version of fascism they seem to find some agreement and i think it's like you said the other day you pointed out it's money it's being rich and white right well i mean and i think that that is what i mean to me if i were to sort of identify what the affinity is that um or one of the affinities that that Peter Thiel sees with this current um, candidate is is capitalism, right? Billion, billionaire is going to billionaire. Um, but I think that there are other pieces as well that I find perhaps even more troubling than just the wealthy doing their thing. I mean, we have, you know, several hundred years in the United States of sort of the wealthy doing their thing. But this in particular feels as though a great, a moment of great potential or real destabilization upon which actually a lot of Silicon Valley ideology is dependent upon, right? The whole notion of disruptive innovation is very much dependent on this notion of dismantling, disrupting, destroying, undoing, unbundling, destabilizing, and 
to, to sort of destabilize the public sphere and to create opportunities for the private for private markets, I think is is I, I imagine what Peter Thiel finds so appealing. Like if we're if if is this a moment in which not just can we shrink the government to the size it will drown in the bathtub, as um, what's his name, Grover Norquist famously quipped, right? It's not just a matter of shrinking the government. It's actually can we permanently destabilize the public space and create a new system of governance and who will be at the forefront leading that charge? Well, and it, I mean, these are things, this is a concept that I've always known. I, it, it just seems like it needs to be reinforced on a regular basis and refreshed in my mind is, is that, you know, I, the, at least myself, I see the, the, the concept of disruption. It sounds like the way people talk about, you know, the, the, the 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 startups disrupting these entrenched industries with these good old boy networks and and things and and the way that it's always portrayed is that they you know in the American way build a better product improve on a process create something better disrupt this old entrenched um, industry or, or you know stodgy group of people who control everything and and you build this better product and all things are new and great and everyone's happy and, and markets win yay but really I mean I, I this w- was re- refreshed for me this week with the, the the dollar shave club acquisition being heralded as such a an amazing tech community startup thing triumph which I don't get but um, Disruption really is about disrupting whatever was, so that you, so that there's a new opportunity for, um, for for those part pieces to be divvied up against whoever the the winning class is in, in in that race. So if it's you know if it's newspaper classify as it gets disrupted by Craigslist, which is pretty much just as closed as and 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 a good old boy network as as the earlier one it's just more digital and but still a bunch of a, a bunch of white guys doing doing the thing and that's really all disruption is in their eyes is just breaking up the pieces scattering them up so that all the the fastest richest white billionaires can pick them up and and win and that's markets working things out it has actually nothing to do with building better products serving customers doing things for the public well, I mean, and for me, I would say the final piece is really the most important is that when we talk about these things that we confuse very easily, we confuse technological progress with political progress. And I think that adding a website to something does not, might, might be a, a, a move forward technologically. Um, but this doesn't actually mean that we're moving forward political in terms of a in terms of political progress for socioeconomic justice. Agreed. Yeah, I mean, and this is what I mean. I think as we uh, we give so much credit and so much weight and and power to you know the technical community and and people who are wielding these products and brands, I think. Um, you know, it's super, super dangerous. And I, but I think that's what, you know, Peter Thiel is, or Thiel is an ambassador for, right? Um, to go get a, get a piece of this new America that's going to unfold. And, and when Donald Trump snaps his fingers on January 20th, all this is, is, is gonna, gonna magically shift. And, and if you have a seat at the table, you're, you're, you're one of them. 
Well, I mean, and I think that the the whole ideology and around disruptive innovation in particular ties into this notion that thing like the way in which Clayton Christ, Christensen first sort of described it is that disruptive innovation is about capturing and turning into markets things that were not already markets. So that's why you start with the free, the cheap, and you sort of move up the chain towards a more, and like those products then disrupt sort of the incumbent powers. But it is about capturing new markets and capturing things that were not seen as part of the market economy before. And for me, that's certainly education, right? We have um, historically uh, carved off certain things from being rightly or wrongly sort of separate from, distinct from, not completely implicated by markets. And I think that when we apply these sorts of um, models, particularly a libertarian model in which all things become uh, all things become markets without any constraints by the government, which might be acting for the good of a public that is not part of a market. And um, we do see sort of the financialization, the marketization of all things. Which, I mean, you know, they, they're going for education. I mean, definitely resisting health care ever going into going the opposite direction and going into a you know like a single payer system or anything like that preventing that but we've also seen this with the military which is like super dangerous right you know the, the all the contractor nature the um of the last couple wars um is is a shift in that direction and with all of this happening and flowing through technical pipes and being more algorithmically you know directed um it's super scary um, I want to tie this, what you the comments that you just made, in particular to um, the documentary that um, I watched, you rewatched this week, um, Zero Days. But I want to just pause for a minute and observe the passing of a really important theorist this week who I think helped, for me personally, be able to identify and talk about and think critically about the ways in which technology um, works in our lives, again, not just at the level of um, objects and artifacts, but, uh, but uh, throughout the sorts of, throughout the culture in which we've built, and that's Ursula Franklin. She was a um, University of Toronto uh, physicist. Um, I think perhaps best known for her book, The Real World of Technology, which was based on, I think, published in 1990, based on some lectures that she gave. But she's sort of in the she's sort of in the spirit of Jacques Ellul and many other uh, Lewis Mumford, many other people who sort of talked about the ways in which our technolog a technological future that we're building towards is sort of deeply embedded in these notions, in these sort of dangerous notions of markets and masculinity. And um, her loss is I think profound at this particular moment when we have markets of masculinity on display to such a horrific extent at the Republican National Convention. But again, I'll put this stuff in the show notes, but um, there's a really great 
write-up of her and several others, a wonderful interview that Robinson Meyer did with her recently in The Atlantic. But, you know, her notion is sort of there is no technology for justice. There is only justice. Her work talks a lot about a culture of compliance, about the ways in which technology helps us sort of helps, helps sort of, um, helps the dominant ideology become normalized and sort of infiltrate markets, again, markets of masculinity infiltrate all aspects of our, of our daily lives. Um, and so I think that you know, sort of seeing this, seeing this sort of theater, sort of theater of paranoia and fear and the technological anger, angle with Teal and the white supremacist angle and the markets and fascism and, and Nazi salutes that people are sort of really certain weren't meant to be Nazi salutes and the retweeting of white supremacists and the role of other um, authoritarian, authoritarian dictators sort of in this election. Um, I feel as though Ursula Franklin, um, Ursula Franklin's words, um, decades old as her book is now, are things that people should turn to and think about and contemplate, particularly as we are building weapons of war. Technology is a weapon of war and not just a weapon of war in which we think of in terms of guns, but also the sort of new a new culture around the sort of violence and compliance of a culture that really Donald Trump is just f- frighteningly emblematic of. Well, and, and I mean, this we watched the uh, Zero Days, which is the, the other night, which was the documentary on the Stuxnet virus. But um, it's kind of a um, kind of the tip of the the spear when it comes to what I'm talking about. When it, you know cyber cyber weapons, cyber warfare is you know creating a, a a virus or that would you know travel and go on computers and spread itself and take out um, a physical infrastructure in Iran. But I think backing that up to you know include cyber cyber warfare being you know um, online and being able to take. You know, it's it's easy to think of it as taking out financial institutions, going after banks, um, hacking, uh, denial of service attacks, that kind of things. But when 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 hacking is is becomes very political and goes after organizations like the Democratic National Convention, uh, or um, or you know any of the, either of the political parties, and 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 extracts emails and communications and publishes those for um, at specific times for specific motives by specific parties who have affinity with with these people that are at the podium or well by nation states yeah. right you know, by nation states. this isn't this isn't an act of a whistleblower this is i want to be clear this is distinct from this is distinct from edward snowden and this is distinct from chelsea manning and uh, despite i think that um chelsea manning's work with wikileaks i think we can agree now that wikileaks has become something else and this is this is a political entity now that is um, involved with nation states, like you said, at the level of cyber warfare. Yeah, when we can rile up a whole group of people within seconds via social media, um, you know, through photos or through messages or through these leaks, um, you know, that's pretty powerful juju as far as, you know, swaying elections and changing people's minds and and I, and I think keep, keeping people in this mode where they're, they're emotionally responding and emotionally, you know, uh, attach these issues in, in, in a very volatile and way that all you got to do is poke that 
um, digitally is is pretty scary stuff. I mean, and I think that you know, but for both of us, our work, you know, our work is sort of involved with a lot of you know. Uh, compiling data and then making that data publicly available and then analyzing that data. And, you know, the wiki, on one hand, I think, you know, WikiLeaks, WikiLeaks is sort of a different sort of entity because it does not, it sort of has skipped that analysis part, sort of in the service of, it claims, it claims a radical transparency. It's actually just making the data that's been hacked openly available without without a sort of journalistic and more importantly perhaps without an ethical guideline to what gets released. So in addition to the DNC, or not the DNC, the, D the Democratic National Party, which was hacked earlier this year by, um, it, purportedly at least, by um, Russian operatives, um, WikiLeaks also released data this week about Turkish citizens, and you know to release that data about um, Turkish citizens in the midst of a coup um, to give away personally identifiable information in the midst of a coup is um, is really is really frighteningly troubling. And similarly, I mean, among the, among the sort of these emails that seem to that are in circulation that. That do, do paint the Democratic National, uh, the Democratic Party as um, sort of saying mean things in email about Bernie Sanders. There was also the release of personally identifiable, personally identifiable information about people who donated money to the Democratic Party. So we have, you know, we have these entities, or we have this entity in particular, um, which is pretty much Julian Assange, who is still. Um, in an embassy in London uh, because of uh, rape charges. Um, we, have, we have this entity um, sort of releasing, releasing data and the, the stakes, I think, are, the stakes are very high, but we're also seeing these actors at play here whose positions politically are, um, I'm not sure we can actually ascribe a political stance or a philosophy to them other than what we were talking about just a minute ago, other than disruption and destruction. And I'm thinking in particular not just of Julian Assange, but his buddy, Milo, um, whose last name I can't remember, um, Milo Yiannopoulos. Nero. Yeah, I mean, in combating these types of people, I mean, there's no, I mean, it's 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 the problem Hillary Clinton faces and and all of us face against the whole Trump thing is is logic is not going to be able to take this stuff head on. You cannot just be sane and and reasonable and and caring and and this in it and it's the ultimate sword against all of this. People like him, like Milo, I mean, they just thrive off of. Uh, dismantling the machine, breaking it, um, and and taking down as many people as possible along the way, and it's it's pretty scary. I I think that this is so, you know, I taught I taught college level writing, and for for seven years, I and in particular, I taught argumentative writing with the belief, um, at the according to the University of Oregon, at least, that that was the kind of writing that students and then 
academics needed to do. You needed to be able to argue a point. But really, more broadly, that's probably one of the most important modes of writing, if you will, that we need to sort of be able to uh, master. The other kinds of writing that you might learn, expository writing, narrative, for example, less important than being able to make an argument, right? Whether the argument is in the email to your boss of why you should get a raise. Being able to make an argument in writing is very important. But when we talk about writing, you know, we often refer to, you know, the ancient Greeks and sort of the ways in which we have different different appeals that a that a that an argument can make, right? And an argument can make an appeal to authority, right? You should believe me because I have a degree from Harvard, right? You should believe me because I'm the Republican nominee for the president of the United States. You should believe me because I'm the president. You, there are appeals to um, logic. You know, X is true, Y is true, therefore when we look at X and Y, we should, we be, we should all believe that Z is true. Um, logical appeals. And then there are appeals to emotion. And I feel as though that we are at a period where a lot of folks are really wanting to double down on fact-checking, right? Everything that Donald Trump says is a lie. Um, and the fact-checkers, you know, every speech he gives, the fact-checkers are like, nope, not true, pants on fire, not true, partially true, a little bit true, but mostly false. Um, but I'm not sure that we are at a moment, and I think that, again, I think that the work of WikiLeaks and um, the the Twitter account formerly known as Nero are not they're not working on facts they're working on it on making an emotional emotional appeals and I don't know uh, fighting emotional appeals is really hard when you're in a culture that really wants to deny fact well and, and the damaging effects of that kind of um, you know trolling. And, and making it so that social networks are just um, unbearable for some people to be on because of, of people like him. And then radical transparency um, when it comes to like WikiLeaks, like really damages from my standpoint as the API evangelist, like really important transparency efforts and, and ways to use in, uh, social networks and other API driven communication and, and, and media distribution tools um, for for actually making change and actually um, organizing people at a local level to make change or, or state or even federal level. But like now people are, you know, aren't going to want to email about things, aren't going to want to be on social networks, aren't going to want to open up data because they're afraid that people are going to, you know, um, get a hold of it and, do, and wield it in these ways. And it's just da- the, the, the damaging effects just keep echoing out from this, I think. I mean, so what you said about people not wanting to be on social media, people not wanting to sort of put their thoughts out there, is really, is, I think, um, really interesting because I think back again to what we were talking about with um, some of these questions around security, back to the zero days questions, back to this notion that really everything is either hacked or hackable that if we're using technology, even if we're not using internet technology, that really it's all incredibly vulnerable. Um, so it's interesting to think about what, is it, what does it mean then 
to be able to even communicate as a to be able to even communicate at all um you know i, I i'm actually um i'm sort of i don't know if i'm surprised i'm not surprised that people are upset by the the dnc leak leaks um you know there are there are some things in there that are um, really unpleasant, <laughs> but then I also think about, man, if I was held, like, if I was held to account for, like, everything I'd written in emails and chats, like, I'm not sure, I'm not sure what to make of a, of a push that we all have to have this sort of radical transparency, particularly for communications that we have very much treated for the last 15 years or so as throw-off responses. Like, there are things that I've written in emails that, um, you know, that you just respond, you respond in like 20 seconds and maybe you're not your best person. <laughs> and so it's, I mean, I think that it is, that there are things, if people want to get you, there are, we have, we have left a digital trail of things that make us all really vulnerable. Yeah. I mean, I, I would want to be held accountable for every moment, every email, everything that I say. And, and I think in this, this this age where things I mean I think you know adding to the whole Milo and trolling and and internet and then radical transparency around WikiLeaks and that kind of stuff is is advertising is driving everything like how everyone is making their money is off of the clicks and people um, you know they're they're fine tuning the algorithm for Facebook for Twitter for Instagram for all for all these news sources to make things red and, and blue, to make things black and white. And so people argue, and that generates, you know, much-needed eyeballs and clicks, and, and that generates revenue. So it's, it's, it's going to be built into the algorithm to, to encourage and incite this type of behavior and, and rather than protect people. And it's, 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 very, it's a volatile combination. So it's like an algorithmically generated outrage culture outrage culture right i mean we we feel like technology is just you know super overwhelming moving super fast um that's that's designed like that to keep us down to keep us you know in this weekend is in this weekend state and then um manufacture rage manufacture you know the the stuff that donald trump says is happening out there that the, uh, the world is is worse you know the u.s is in in, in worst possible state ever you know, if you listen to the news and, and you hear the terror attacks, I mean, you believe it. And I think the algorithm is just fanning that, that flame. That's actually one of the lines um, of the uh, Lori Penny piece. And she has this, I think, really very uh, chilling um, look at she went to um, Nero's event at the Republican uh a national convention, the sort of, I think it was gays for Trump event that immediately prior to, he had learned that he'd been banned from Twitter um, because of the dog whistle attacks that he'd sort of orchestrated against um, the African-American star of the new Ghostbusters movie, Leslie, whose last name I can't remember. Anyway, um, but there's a line in there that she says, it's what happens when weaponized insincerity is applied to structured ignorance. And I feel as though that's sort of, that sentence really crystallizes our culture at the moment. And our culture, this sort of, this that adjective weaponized, 
um, I think is really the key piece. And like sort of, you know, we've talked about cyber warfare, um, right? So we've talked about sort of Russian operatives and WikiLeaks and data leaks um, as sort of a new, a new weapon of state-sponsored war. But we're actually seeing this other other level at the at the level of sort of the the mundane day to day even that is about this weaponization of of the of other aspects of our culture and they're weaponized again through almost the same technologies right we have created we have created a technological infrastructure that is so quickly weaponized um, for purposes that are not about the shining, happy, politically progressive things that I think a lot of people, I, myself included, had initially thought that that's what we were doing. That's not what we thought the web would be. That's not what we thought the internet would be. We talk about, you know, we talk about sort of sharing and networks and um, you know, decentralization, but really we're, what, what we're seeing is this, the ways in which these technologies are being weaponized and they're, wep they're weaponized. Again, the, her sentence is so interesting around structured ignorance, right? So these, the people who have been weaponized, the Julian Assange's, right? The Nero's of the world, even the Donald Trump's of the world, um, I don't think they give a shit about anything other than their own political, the, not even their own political, their own personal edification, fame, glory, ego, hubris. But, but they have managed to take advantage of media, television, as well as social networks in order to become weaponized and take advantage of the ways in which these networks have also structured ignorance. And I'm sure people quickly jump up to you know, counter the, our, the notion that, that these things are being weaponized. But I think when you, when you think of, you know, what's, what this new kind of warfare arena involves and, and, and what all countries are ramping up to do, I saw a, a country in Africa was ramping up their drone force. I can't remember which, but, you know, people are building these, these, these cyber units, these, these groups. And because it is, you know, I think the the front line of it, you think of it as as banks being taken down, markets, uh, machines, the stock market being, uh, you know, Dow Jones being taken down, these things. Um, but you know, with Stuxnet, we're we're thinking now we're thinking infrastructure. But but you got to you know think of it in terms of the election and and we're we're throwing shit all over the the Democratic Party right now. The week before, um, they're supposed to you know. Um, do what they do. And so people are wielding these technologies. Think of every social network, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, they're all being used in these ways to cast this. And then pretty much any other technology system, you know, uh, uh, cell phones are, are, you know, capturing things that we've never, you know, that have always been going on and there's being wielded in different ways. But these things are being weaponized to ruin people's lives and, and shift, uh, you know, the shift the power as people have always seen. Well, well, I mean, and that's, I think, what's important to recognize about the ways in which these are weaponized is this isn't just a matter of war, like, this isn't just a matter of state war. This isn't, this isn't, um, although it could be Russia versus NATO, um, but this isn't just about 
um, the nation state at war with another nation state. This isn't just about one government hacking another government. I mean, we're also talking about weaponization in a culture war, right? And I think that what we're seeing is certainly a culture war. And I think that the culture war includes, you know, it includes a whole raft of social policies enacted by various, you know, ver various parties across the political spectrum that are sort of raised to this, this level that that are um, that that get, that get raised to this level of war that have been deemed to be irreconcilable. I'm not sure that they are, but they're raised to the level of culture war, right? So you know, I mean, even if you think of this in terms of a religious war as well, I mean, we're we're seeing these things play out at a level that aren't just about nation act, you know, nation states as actors. And I think that um, her last name is Jones, Leslie Jones. I think that the attacks on Leslie Jones orchestrated by Nero were about a culture war, right? And in a way that on one hand might be deemed like weirdly meaningless, like really it's that big a deal that that they remade Ghostbusters movie with women? Like, I don't know how fragile you have to be that you find that to be so untenable. But it is, apparently, for a lot of people. And I think that, that, the, that the attacks on her were deeply personal. But they were also bound up with, you know, all sorts of, um, you know, other, other cultural, societal societal issues. And undoing a culture war is a lot more complicated, um, I think, and it requires a different set of tactics that I'm not sure, I'm not sure a lot of us have really thought through. And I think that this is, I mean, I think that this is one of the problems I think that many people are seeing right now with the Democratic Party as we go into the, the Democratic National Convention this week is that um, I don't I don't see how how Hillary Clinton in particular gets us out of this culture war. No, I mean I don't. I'm I, I'm with everyone in saying how untrustworthy you know the whole machine that she represents is you know I guess the Democratic uh, corporate machine industrial complex, but. Um, you know, like the the fact that the algorithm is so so tailored to put the WikiLeaks because of the way that SEO and social media works to keep you know because we got the Democratic National Convention coming up this week. How do you surf that with the 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 be, the right possible message you, as you can? And that WikiLeaks is that it's like put something on on the the machine on on the gears and it just spreads because that's how the algorithm is works works on Twitter. Um, the Google search, and that's how these news organizations are set up because of their advertising models to really propel this forward, and 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 to and to keep down the people. I mean, that's why the the Twitter algorithm doesn't have this defensive built into it is because the is built by a bunch of dudes who codified this into the process and did you know didn't think about it, but then it's like now they don't want to think about it because it's going to hurt the you know hurt them at their bottom line, and so this this is codified literally into into this 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 wildly out of control system that's being manipulated by people like Milo, people like by WikiLeaks, and by you know um, both the Republican and the Democratic 
um, you know, machines, but it's just whether they have control over it from one week to one week or one message to one message. Um, I don't know. So that's actually a really interesting piece to, to wrap up, um, to sort of leave a thought with is, you know, if, if this is a culture war, right, if we're in the midst of a culture war, what pieces of, of the culture war are being hard-coded? Because, of course, technology was born of war, or computing technology, I should say. Computer technology was born of war, and we still haven't really worked out the implications of what that means. Computers sort of computers birth in cryptography, command, control, communications, surveillance. And so what pieces what pieces of this war, a cultural war, are we finding ourselves um, will we find ourselves having systems hard-coded, not just cultural practices, which are sometimes hard to change too, but actually hard-coded into the machine, these, um, these elements. Well, that's, I mean, that is the fundamental core of what I do as API evangelist is poke holes, little tiny itty-bitty holes so that sunlight can get into these, these endpoints that that you know increasingly are these algorithms. Your 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 Facebook graph um, is is a is a endpoint. Your Twitter timeline, your Twitter followers, are all N- API endpoints. And, and if they're done right, not not that that makes them pure by themselves, but if done right, you can let some light in on that algorithm, some algorithmic transparency that that give us. The users who are affected by these algorithms on an increasingly daily basis um, at every turn have, can have some understanding of what goes on. And there are at least a handful of people who are, who are you know, like journalists and, and scientists and, and government regulators can, can see in and say, actually, well, let's test some assumptions against this algorithm, see if it matches the claims that you're making about what this, what this should do. And that's going to just become increasingly more important as as we let the algorithms drive our lives and all of this this um, you know uh, systemic uh, parts of our existence are being hard coded into and automated and scaled infinitely with these algorithms. Oh man! Well, resistance is possible. Don't let them tell you otherwise.